It's a privilege for me to be here with you all this morning. Uh, as was said earlier, my name is Micah McKelvin, and I'd like to actually start by introducing a couple special guests. Uh, there's over 450 staff that work with Vapor Ministries across the globe, um, but one of the most special volunteers is actually my bride. Audrey, will you stand up? I'll put a picture up here. I'm so proud of her and my family, just in case you can't see her. She's a Kentucky gal, was born and raised right in Winchester, Kentucky. The little boy you see in the middle, his name is Arrow. Hopefully you get to see him shooting off the walls uh, in the lobby. Uh, And then uh, she has our newest little one who has her own picture, my little princess. Yes, that's Miss Given. And so, babe, love you. Thank you so much for all you do. And it's a privilege having you here with me. As, as was shared earlier, we work with uh, Vapor Ministries, and I'll just say on behalf of all of us, uh, it truly is a privilege to be here with you this morning. I just want to start by thanking Pastor Haynes, uh, the testimony of the years of, of faith, faithful gospel witness and leadership through the church here in this community, reaching into the nations. We praise God for that, and thank you, brother, for what you've been doing and what you are doing here also, Daniel and Mary Beth, they have a special place in our hearts. As was shared, they worked with us. What he didn't share is Daniel lived with me and my wife for about 15 months, and then Daniel hired Mary Beth, and when Daniel moved out, she lived with my wife and I for a while, and I like to say Daniel hired uh, for marriage. So he actually hired a gal and then married her, and we've since changed our hiring practices. I'll just let you know uh, at Vapor, but uh, uh, Daniel and Mary Beth continue to be intimately involved with the ministry, serves, he serves on our board. Um, um, we're very close friends with them. Um, and I'll just say that Daniel and Mary Beth, in a very real sense, helped lay the foundation that the current ministry is built upon. And so thank you for your years of service, your continued service to Christ through the marketplace here in this community. And we're so thankful for Christ uh, in you. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. So For those of you who like to know, what's the point? What are we going to do today? The type A personalities. I'll tell you my hope for this morning. I pray that through my story and through God's word, I pray that God allows me to inspire a fresh, urgent pursuit of Christ's work amongst the least and the lost. As we think for a moment about urgency, which Urgency ties to time, right, or our view of time on some level. I want to just ask our audience, for all of us, to just take a moment of introspection. Think about your view of of time. So do you fall in the, hey, we got plenty of time camp? Or do you fall in the, man, it's ticking, life's flying by camp? Do you feel like plenty of time remains or like, Life is short. Think about that with me for a moment. How do you view time? Let's pray. Jesus, we magnify you. We exalt your holy name. We declare our dependency upon your word and upon your spirit. We declare our allegiance to your commands. We ask this morning that we would see a a fresh view of what you say matters forever. We pray you give our hearts courage to align with your commands and your calls and your word. Inspire us today. Grant us a passion for your work in difficult places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So how many ball players do we have here? You can raise your hand. Or maybe I should say, how many former ball players? <laughs> I'm in the great basketball state of Kentucky, right? All right? Yeah, raise your hands. Right? How many, how many UK fans do we have in this, in this? All right? I married a UK girl. I know you can take the girl out of Kentucky, but you can't take Kentucky out of the girl, right? And I also know, right, there was a ball game last night. Got pretty excited about that over at the Roberts house. People cheering, right? A little, little bit of wildcat action going on here. I don't, I don't know about uh, you, but I grew up loving ball. Was born doing it. My mom actually has pictures of me when I was two years old just holding the football. My father coached high school football. He coached basketball. He coached baseball. And for a for a period, he was actually an athletic director, and I grew up loving ball. In time, something happened for me. Uh, this love turned into a passion. Eventually, the passion turned into an obsession. And really, ultimately, this obsession led to just full-fledged idolatry. The passion for something I did, sports, took an improper place in my heart, and it really began to define everything about me. My father, uh, he had coached, we had lived uh, out on the West Coast mostly, and we had moved from the West Coast out to where he had taken an AD uh, basketball and coaching job in Florida. And my father could see this tension. And after a, a practice, he came up to me and he, he grabbed me and he said, Son, he said, I want to challenge you with something. He said, I, I've coached against some of the greats. I believe you have the tools to play at the next level. But he said, Son, Life is not about a game. He said, life is ultimately short. And God has made you on purpose for his purposes. Live sold out to God. Now, that's great advice. Nothing innately harmful in those words. But what happened is my dad shared is really internally a, a, a tension was crystallized. An internal wrestling match had been, been going on for my heart's affection. And I, and I wouldn't have even known how to articulate it at the time, but now I would say that really what I wanted is I wanted Jesus to be my Savior, but for me to maintain lordship. I wasn't an atheist and I wasn't anti-God. I just wanted to captain the ship. I wanted his grace to grant me an internal inheritance, but for me to do my thing while here on planet earth in the wrestling match it got worse we had a big friday uh, a book a big football game coming up on a friday night and my father had had this conversation with me and and i remember just kind of uh, wrestling that night and and as i wrestled throughout the night the, the match peaked about 2 a.m as i couldn't sleep and i i finally just stood up in the room and and i literally said to the air i said god this is my life and I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. Thinking I had put it to rest and moving on with my kind of goals, we, we went to do something else we loved to do. We had picked up surfing on the West Coast, and, and now we had moved to the, to the Gulf Coast of Florida. And how many of you have been down to that big pond we call the Gulf down there? Well, the only time where there was surfable waves would be when the, the hurricanes would form out in the Gulf. They would kick up some surf. And so we thought that would be a great time to catch waves. And so my brother and I, we went down during a storm that was off coast. And, and there was tremendous waves. They were breaking out at what's called breaking point. But then they would reform and they would break again on the beach. It's called beach break. And 
You have to get through this huge surf in order to get out to ride the waves. And so my brother and I, we were racing to see who could get down there first. And I went trucking down the beach, got ahead of him. And as fast as I could run, I looked up, I was going down the beach and I looked up and I saw a huge wave refoiling or reforming and it was going to crash on the beach. And so I timed my run and just at the last minute, I dove headlong into a wave like I had a hundred times before, only this time when I hit the wave, something happened. It was like a shock rushed through my body. Instinctively, I, I knew to lay still, but the momentum of my dive carried me through the water. I remember being a little bit groggy, laying face down. Something was wrong. I, I didn't know what. And the next wave, it rolled me over, and I, and I could see the surface. I could see the air. And when I tried to get up, my body wouldn't work. Panic just raced through my veins. Try as I might, I could not get myself to the surface. In a last-ditch effort, I, I put my lips together, and I sucked for air, but I couldn't reach, and I sucked in water, and I passed out. My brother had seen me dive in, didn't think anything was wrong, went to get the football. He's buying some time, and eventually, he comes down to the very water, looked out where I had dove in, and, and as he looked out in the water, he couldn't see me. I was caught in what's called a longshore current. My body was pulled underwater. And every moment that was passing, I was being pulled down the beach. I was drowning. My brother thought nothing was wrong, and so he just thought maybe I had snuck out. And so he left the place where I dove in and began to search back in the bushes. I'm dying. Every moment, life is hanging in the balance. My brother, my mother and father, they got my sisters out. They came down to the place where my brother was searching for me. And to make a long story short, they estimate that about five to seven minutes passed. From the time my brother saw me dive in, the time my family saw a stranger, he was standing in some slack water about 150 yards down the beach. He was lifting up a hand, and he dropped it. He had seen a body, and he was testing to see if there was life in it. My mother, she hit the beach and began to scream, God, don't take my son. God, don't take my son. My brother pulled her up. They ran to the nearest house to call 911. My, my father sprinted down the beach and he pulled my lifeless body out of the surf. I had no heartbeat, no pulse, no body functions whatsoever. I'd flatlined. Technically, clinically, I was dead. Eventually, the EMTs, EMTs arrived. The 911 story unfolded. The defibrillators, resuscitation. I was put on a helicopter and I don't remember much of the first week, but I remember coming too and I kind of gagged too. And as I came to, I was choking on tubes in my throat, and they were in my nose as well, and sensors all over my body. I remember uh, the very first thing I could see in the room was my father, and he sat in the corner of the room, bags under his eyes, hadn't shaved. You could tell he'd been under duress, and the very first words that came out of my mouth were these, how did I do in the game? Football in the brain. My dad looked back, and he said, son, you didn't play. You broke your neck. I had shattered four vertebrae in my neck. I was totally quadriplegic. And on October 9th, 1995, God taught me very personally this truth, this reality. That life at the end of the day is like a vapor. Like a mist that appears for a moment and vanishes away. The psalmist talks about this truth, this principle, in a very redundant way, quite honestly, in Psalm 39, 4 and following. He says, O Lord, help me understand 
my mortality and the brevity of life. He says, let me realize how quickly my life will pass. Look, you make my days short-lived, and my lifespan is nothing from your perspective. Surely all people, even those who seem secure, are nothing but vapor. Surely people go through life as mere ghosts. Surely they accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who will eventually haul it away. But now, O sovereign master, upon what am I relying? You are my only hope. It's as if the psalmist looks out across the landscape of humanity in his day and sees mankind in this giant rat race. And and quite honestly, that rat race doesn't look too much different than it does today. He sees human beings trying to find ultimate meaning, eternal significance, and things that will not matter one moment after we breathe our last. Human beings trying to insulate themselves eternally, ultimately, with their savings, with their earnings, trying to find their identity and their significance in that which they've achieved and earned and acclaimed. And the psalmist looks out and he says, Dear God, don't let me waste my life. Teach me that I am not immortal and that my days are numbered, and that my end will surely come. Now the wake-up call that he's asking for is a great wake-up call that releases us into a life well lived. This is not a downer scripture. This is an encouraging scripture ultimately because it all rolls up and ends up in God. and all rolls up and ends up in this piece of wake me up so that I don't waste. You see, here's what the psalmist says, and this is the truth we want to pull from and we want to camp out on for us. See, on October 9th, 1995, this reality was forever branded in my chest. And the truth that comes with it is true for us today, for all of us. You see, God brought me to a crossroads. The reality is life is a vapor. The question that both you and I have to answer is what will we do with our vapor? Will we waste it? Or will we invest it? And God opened my eyes to the tremendous opportunity before me. The great gift to invest my life in what He says matters forever. And I submit to you today what what you already know. You could be teaching me. I'm a young man, right? But a life well lived on purpose for his purposes is a life that only needs to be lived once. And so my desire, my heart, my goal this morning is to inspire us to a sense of urgency to sell out to what God says matters forever. So I I would guess, I would guess that if I kind of pulled the audience, and said, um, okay, do you want to waste it or do you want to invest it? Raise your hand, right? <laughs> I would guess, well, none of us would admit if we just wanted to waste it, right? <laughs> but I would have guessed that genuinely, a large part of the reason you're here 
is you're saying, I want to live for God. I want to invest my life. So I'm speaking to friends. I'm speaking to a group of people that are on the same quest that I am. How do we invest our vapor? Every one of us has been entrusted with a life to invest. And we've all been granted stewardship of that life. So how do we successfully invest our vapor? I want to give you a principle, and then we're going to look at four important things as we equip ourselves this morning with God's Word. But I want to give you a principle that is no doubt not, or it's no doubt familiar to you, but it's this, this reality and some of our thoughts following, some of our biblical thoughts following go to support this. Great investing follows faithful stewardship. We're not talking about winning the lottery. We're not talking about a silver bullet and doing a one-time thing. We're talking about what does it look like over the span of our vapor to steady plod and sow in in such a way that at the end, it's a life greatly invested. So here are some questions for each of us as we seek to do this well. The first question that my wife and I ask every year, we actually ask more often than that, but we actually have a set-aside set time where we pull out together and we use these questions to help us recalibrate our utilization of resource. And the first question goes like this. How should I spend the time you have given me? Now, as a young man, I used to think that the most valuable commodity was finance, money. But the more I've grown and the more I've spent time with folks that actually know a lot more and have lived more of life, the more I realize that time truly is our most valuable commodity. You can make more money, but you can't make more time. And the Bible tells us that we have an, appo an appointment of sorts. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, talks about it this way. He says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Benjamin Franklin said it well, we're all guaranteed two things, death and taxes. And the government will get theirs, by the way. But there is no pill. And, and I am a fan of looking both ways when you cross the street. I am a fan of putting your seatbelt on. Well, kind of. I, I do that most of the time, right? I do think that we should not be reckless, if you will, right? But here's the reality. Whether it's 100 years or whether it's 20 years, in the broad scheme of things, it's short. The real question for us is not about quantity. It's about quality. God, how can I invest the time you have given me? How much utilization of the time he's entrusted to us is just frivolously used on things that matter not? That's a great question for each of us to ask. The, the second question that my wife and I ask continually and I pose for all of us here this morning is, how can I use the talent you have given me? Now, when I get to talk to different groups about using our gifts, there's typically two groups of people in the audience, and obviously there's people that fall in between. There's the group of people that are quite convinced that they are indeed talented. Right? <laughs> right? There are people we all know that they not only, they know their hot stuff, right? <laughs> so for that group, it's like, okay, you have some talents, you know it, how do we funnel them? But there's typically another group. There's a whole group of people that are wrestling with their value. What do I bring to the table? I'm nothing. I'm good for nothing. 
I have no marketable skills. I'm not a good teacher. And so I want to just speak to both groups. But mostly I want to speak to the second group. You are gifted by God with the talents of heaven. We serve an intentional, sovereign, purposeful God. And at salvation, he entrusts us with spiritual gifts. But in the mother's womb, he wired you by his hands. The Bible tells us this in Psalm 139, 13. For you, for God, for you created my inmost being. You see his intent? You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, you may be left brain, or you may be right brain. You may be like me, no brain, right? You may be a circular thinker, linear thinker. You may have, uh, I don't know what your gifts are, but, but make no mistake, you are endowed by God on purpose, wired with intent. The question is not, do you possess talent? The question is one of stewardship. How can you and I use the talent that he has given to each of us? The third stewardship question is each of us say, we want to invest. Remember, we're in the invest camp, right? We're all together here. We're saying, show us what resources we have and show us how to invest them. The third question that we continually must ask is, how do you want me to invest the treasure you have entrusted to me. Now again, I want to talk about the difference between quality and quantity. The point here is not quantity. Whether, whether you're like some of our friends in Africa and you trade in chickens and you really have the shirt on your back, or whether you have a 401k and extra padding, the question isn't how much treasure. The question for each of us is, is how are we stewarding the treasure that God has given us. There's so much that the Bible has to say about the utilization of our money. God says things like where your money is, your heart is. Jesus talked about money almost more than any other subjects. But one of the places in the Old Testament that sticks out to me that is truly unique, that makes this connect between stewardship and the releasing of resources to God's work is found in Chronicles. The, the quick context, I know I'm with a, a biblically astute crowd, and so the quick context is, is this. Uh, David has served well, but David was a warrior king. David had a lot of blood on his hands, the Bible says. David had a zeal to build the temple of God. Remember what God told him? David, because of all the blood on your hands, that's going to be Solomon's task. And many of us think that David kind of said okay and checked out. But David did something very specific with his time from that point forward. He crystallized the vision for the future temple. He actually organized the human resource, that's what Chronicles is talking about, into groups and clans, who would do what. And then he secured the financing for it. And in this one huge assembly, David does something powerful. First, he puts his money where his mouth is. He drops his finances into the plate for the building of the temple. And then he encourages his people to join him. And this is what happens after David gives an incredible gift. Now let me just tell you this real quick. 
David put a big check in the plate. The modern-day equivalent, uh, many scholars look back and say that the current-day value of what he put, it was like in gold and silver and things like that, was over $50 billion. So he wrote a big check. And look what happens as the Bible tells us what allowed him to do that. It's super powerful. Check out the stewardship tied to generosity. He says, as people look and point at him as such an awesome giver, he says, wait a minute, who am I? And who are my people that we should be in such a position to contribute this much? Indeed, everything comes from you. And we have simply given back to you what is yours. And this is the key to all stewardship. It's not my time. It's not my talent. That's not my family. I steward the daughter of God. I steward the children that God has granted to me. And I will give an account. It's not my treasure. I'm not an owner. I'm a manager. And that's freeing. It releases me from having to control it all. Now I can focus on, God, show me how you want me to steward it. And the same is true for the last resource that we've all been entrusted with, and that's the gift of influence. How can I use the influence you have granted me? Now, oftentimes when we talk about influence, uh, it's often used in leadership circles, right? We tend to think, well, leaders have influence. They need to steward it. So you may be here and you may say, you may say I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not the division head of anything. I'm not a pastor. Uh, maybe you're not the head of a household. But here's the reality. Life impacts life. Every life has influence. Now, if, if you're like me, and you're, I'm sure you're surely not, and that's a good thing for you, you're, you may actually think when a, when a communicator says something emphatic, like everyone has influence, you may try to go through your mind and say, well, let me prove that there's a case where somebody doesn't, right? So just in case, that's what you're doing. Let's illustrate it. Imagine you said, I have no influence. I'm a nobody. So I'm going to prove it, and I'm going to sit in a corner, and I'm going to check out, and I'm not going to influence anybody. Would your decision to check out not impact the lives around you? Life impacts life. You have been entrusted with influence. Whether you have a big following or a small following is not the point. The question for us is, God, how, how can I use the influence you've entrusted to me? The author of Hebrews is good on this too. He actually grants us a focal point for the using of our influence. He says, let us consider, let us be thoughtful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on, influence each other, right? How can we use our influence for something specific? Human flourishing. The flourishing of one's soul and the flourishing of one's body. How can we be thoughtful and say, God, help us use our time, talent, treasure, and influence in such a way that lives are enhanced in such a way that God is brought glory. How can we care about souls 
and care about lives and do it in a way that God is exalted. This is what God began to show me through the process of rehabilitation and recalibration. I began to see in God's word his heart for the poor, his heart for the marginalized, his heart for the physically downtrodden. I became convinced that God indeed wants us to meet the needs of others. Over 400 times in God's word, there are calls from our maker to us to care for the poor. But equally, I became convinced of God's heart for the lost. That his desire was that the gospel would spread to all men. And that he platforms that in all throughout scripture. And he declares it in the scripture that we read earlier to his disciples. He says, go make disciples and do it in all nations. I became convinced that we are to live for the feeding of souls. That we have before us the great command, care for the poor, and the great mandate, make disciples. And our call is to do it in such a way that brings glory to Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. We're not just here to get through the week and watch a ball game. We have a mission. We have a purpose. We have been endowed with the resources by heaven to use it on purpose that His name would be made great as human flourishing happens all over this world. Are you excited? That gets me excited. That's something worth investing in. Lord, we just lift up our sister. Be with her now. Lord, touch her as only heaven can. Lord, we entrust her to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, life is indeed short. I want to talk for a moment about what we want to invest our lives towards. One of the things that God began to show me in this journey of seeking His face, asking Him to show what does it look like to invest it well, one of the things He began to show me was a whole nother level of poverty that exists in our world today. Will you close your eyes with me for one moment? Just close your eyes. Right now in our world, there's an estimated 1.3 billion people living in what's called extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is defined as living on less than $1.25 a day. So picture with me for a moment. What would life look like if you were trying to do life on $1.25 a day? What would home look like? Open your eyes if you will. Welcome to the slums. My first time encountering extreme poverty was in a place like you see on the screen. Over 300,000 human beings, men and women, boys and girls, no different than us, living in a squalor that's hard to describe. Oftentimes, little to no access to electricity, 
raw sewage running through the streets. I came to a lady's home named Velma. Velma took me in. Her home was approximately 12 by 14 feet. I didn't have a measuring stick, but I'm guessing. And standing in her home, a dirt floor, one little rickety table, a bed in the corner, I began to ask questions, survival questions. I asked her, I said, how do you sleep? You see, she had inherited her sister's kids who had died of AIDS. There was 12 people living in that home. She explained to me that her and her husband slept on the bed, one child to the right, one child across her feet, one child to the left. She pointed to the rickety table, and she said three kids sleep across that table each night. She pointed to the bench in the corner, and she said the rest of the kids sit, sit, uh, sleep sitting up against that tin siding. And she said, we just rotate because the bed's the best night. She said, that's how we sleep in this home. I walked out of Velma's home into the greater slum, and for a month I built relationships and, and better began to relate to the numbers. And, and what happened in that time is the statistics became names and faces, and, and poverty all of a sudden became personal. The commands of God became impossible to ignore And I knew coming back from that experience that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to forget what I saw or spend the rest of my life trying to do something about it. And wrestling in that tension, God birthed a vision, a response that we now call Vapor Ministries. So at Vapor Ministries, we go into these slums, these third world environments, and we engage the mess. We actually create these centers. These are places where The gospel is proclaimed. These are places from which human suffering is taken seriously and we're able to serve the poorest of the poor. We tap into their passion, whatever their sport of choice is, and we use that to elevate God and advance the gospel. But because the centers are built in the middle of third world poverty, we're strategically located and able to, to care for some of the, the, the uh, care for basic human needs in a way that helps lift people out of poverty. So these centers start off as dreams and they turn into working reality, hubs of hope, places where the gospel is advancing. And ladies and gentlemen, we have been seeing miracles from heaven as God is advancing his good news and lives are being transformed. It would take all day to recount to you how we have seen the hand of God move. But let me share just a couple of things. So our disciple-making efforts happen chiefly through using the sport of choice, which is typically soccer in these communities. And thousands of children, youth, and adults come. And they come to do what they love. And while they're there... They hear about the one that loves them. Right now, we have over 5,500 in our disciple-making groups. Last month alone, we saw over 200 people place their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is all happening through the hands of indigenous disciples who have placed their trust in Christ, share our values, and are now the disciple-makers that are advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ We're seeing revival in some of the darkest places on planet Earth. I'll show you a quick clip that kind of illustrates what this looks like on the ground.
couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of taking a group of leaders down to one of our centers in Haiti, where hopefully some of you will be going in July. And while there, I got to interact with a young man named Minosh. Minosh was born in a slum in Haiti. His mother is blind and mute. One day, she was washing her clothes on a river called La Massacre, and she was pulled in broad daylight into the brush, and she was raped. Minosh is a product of that rape. But Minosh, his story didn't end there. Though he experienced homelessness, fatherlessness, and a variety of struggles, he heard that a center was being built about four miles away. And he started walking even before that center opened because he loved to play soccer. Our guys on the ground say over the last six years, he's never missed the practice, never missed the game. He heard that he has a heavenly father and he placed his hope and faith in Jesus Christ and became one with his Savior. We ended up getting him a bike because that's a long way to go, one way, right? We were able to come alongside him and his mother, found out his home situation. We were able to help put a roof on his mother's home, patch up her house, put in a garden for her and show her how she could tend to it. We were able to get, we were able to get Minosh his first bed, get him enrolled in school. And on this last trip to Haiti, I just happened on the field. Is Minosh, now a believer, has become a disciple maker and caught this as he was gathering he was his young Minosh, boys. coaching his team. Isn't it awesome to see disciples making disciples? Let's give God a round of applause. God is great. He will win the victory. We're unashamedly about multiplying disciples, but we're also unashamedly about serving people's basic needs. At every center, we have robust poverty-alleviating outlets. We provide clean water to the community. Two of our centers, the community had not previously had clean water. One of those cities, their city's history predates American history. And now that community has water in the name of Jesus Christ. At every center, we take the poorest of the poor and we fund their formal education. We're able to come alongside and help people's health improve through critical care grants and disease prevention training. There's a whole host of ways that we're able to serve the poorest of the poor. Right now, between the five operating centers, we're actually serving tens of thousands of people through our poverty alleviating efforts. As I shared with you earlier, around 450 staff and over 5,500 in the disciple-making groups. And we believe that God is just getting started. We believe there's many more communities that he would have us touch and reach to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, while I get excited about broad impact, at the end of the day, you and I know something. That it's about the one. Every person matters to God. And so as we move towards close, I want to end with the story of one. This little boy on the right, his name is Hasmin. It's hard to tell in the picture, but his, his hair is actually turning yellow. His eyes are closed here, but I'm the one that took the pictures, and so you'll have to take my word on it. His eyes were overcome with yellow. That's a late-stage malnutrition in an African child. You can't tell on the screen, but the little boy had no britches on. His genitals were exposed. He smelled like a trash bin. Now, the reason I took this picture was because I was shocked at what this boy was doing. He actually was handing me money. 40 cents, a 20-shilling piece. To me, it was 40 cents. But for this kid, he could actually get a meal a day over four days. And he was giving me the money. 
I handed it back to him, said he was honest, he ran into the slum. Next day, this little boy came up, and, and I couldn't even recognize him. The reason I couldn't recognize him was this little boy had gone down, and he'd gotten a bath. He'd gotten a shave. He got his head shaved. He wanted to feel the sensation of being clean. That's how he spent the money. And he came to show me what he had done. Found out his story, four years of age approximately. His father died of AIDS. Grandmother died of AIDS. Grandfather. His mother was thought to be dead of AIDS. He was homeless at four, sleeping in a dump. That's why he smelled like a trash can. He would knock on people's doors at night, hoping that people would stick out scraps to a dog. This is Hasmin. Hasmin ended up moving in with me and my roommates. I lived on the edge of the slum for a year as we built our first center. We got to come alongside him and fund his education, begin to mentor and pour into him. Found out he had two living sisters. Had them all tested. They're all okay. His two sisters, we were able to fund their education. Both got college scholarships. One is gainfully employed post-college, and one is now a senior in college. The one that graduated is a teacher, a high school teacher at guess who's high school? Hasmin. Hasmin speaks three languages. He's a mentor of young men now. We found his mom living. She does have AIDS, but we were able to come alongside her, provide medicine. She's on staff with us. Hasmin recently, we had told him if he hit his goals, hit his marks, he could earn a missionary trip with us to Haiti. And wouldn't you know it, that little boy earned it. This little boy, no record of his birth, living in the squalor of a dump. Now a passport on a plane flying to Haiti. And I bet you can't tell which one he is on the screen here, but he's tucked in between my wife and I. And while there in Haiti, I watched this young man share the hope of Jesus Christ and remind little Haitian boys that he had come all the way from Africa and could personally testify to the hope that is found in the Father that will never leave and forsake. And I share with all of us today this firm reality that Jesus is worth it all. And he has granted us stewardship of one life. And it is for each of us to go before him and commit to go all in and invest our short lives, time, talent, treasure, and influence for what he says will matter forever. And a life lived on purpose for his purposes is a life with no regrets. And I pray that for each of us, we will invest well. Here's a final video. Pleasure to be with you. Please come see us after the service if you wish.